0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have a unique opportunity. I'm very excited. We've been working on getting this for quite some time, an opportunity to sit down with Monique Presley. Monique Presley is a skilled trial attorney, television legal analysis, contributor on many, many fronts, crisis manager, radio host. I mean, this lady has done it all. Adjunct law professor, certified leadership trainer, and also an ordained minister. She has appeared on just anything you can imagine from ABC News to NBC to CBS to CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all the alphabets across the board. She's really, really stirred things up and been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, the Legal Times, Essence Magazine, Jet Magazine, you name it, her face is there. Recently, and even more notably, she has come before the public eye because she has been the lawyer as a part of the legal team, I should say, for the Bill Cosby defense team, and acted as his official spokesperson during his legal troubles. Monique, I am excited and delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining me today.
1: It's my honor to be here,
0: Bishop. You know, when you look at the breadth of your career, take me back to the little girl who grew up never imagining that she would be in this role that you are in right now. And what were the steps of evolution that brought you to the role you play now?
1: All right. So we have to start with me saying I was never that little girl. You always knew. I was six years old in Galveston, Texas. And the famous state of Texas versus Elroy Brown case was going on. And former Congressman Craig Washington was the defense attorney representing Elroy Brown. And I was about six and a half. And my mom took me because it was in Galveston at our county courthouse. And she took me through the hot summer. It was something just like out of Matlock, except real. And I, for whatever reason, wanted to be a lawyer. I was saying, as soon as I could talk, that I was going to be singing and that I was going to be a lawyer, and that when I was a famous lawyer, I would buy each my mom and my dad a Volkswagen Bug. (laughs) I still owe them the Bug. I'm doing okay, (laughs) but they don't have those. But she took me. She said, okay, well, if you think that's what you want to be, let me show you. And we were in the back of that courtroom, standing room only, hot as the Dickens, and I got to watch on the third day. Craig deliver his closing argument, and when he was finished, I said, "That, that's it." So from then, as early as I could argue, which was Carter versus Reagan second grade debate, I brought peanuts to give to the classmates. I won the debate; he lost the election, um, and and it just goes. From from there, I was always the advocate. If people had a problem in my class, I was the one that they chose to stand up and make the argument for the class. And it's been that way. So when I look at where I am now, what I feel like is that I saw this and I saw further than this Mm -hmm. because what God showed me for my life started to develop and change. And I knew that being a lawyer was a step.
0: How important is it when you start talking about education that the parents in the house endorse the significance of education and not just relegate it to the teacher in the school?
1: It makes a difference whether it's the parents in the house, which is the most ideal thing. OK. Because for me, there were no options. So mm-hmm. it was, <laughs> right. you're going to do this or you're not going to do any of that other that you like so much. Mm-hmm. Let any single one of these grades come back looking iffy and we will figure out what this is about and why. But I, because that came so early, mm-hmm. I wasn't that child. I was that ambitious a type. Oh, I can't believe the A minus. What is that about? What is this mean? Right. What's going on in my life? My mom would be looking at me. But because she was there, I was Ahead, because I had her and my dad. I can remember my dad says he learned Spanish going over my Spanish homework. Wow. He had never studied Spanish in school, you know, and he worked at a plant in the Galveston area, but he learned Spanish and relearned math and figured out geometry with me because that was part of our life. It was that regular system Money. with parents who cared.
0: That's amazing. You often hear people talking about the influence of their mothers on their lives, and their mother was a teacher, mine was too. But then you took it a step further, and you started talking about the significance of your father and his role that he played, and learning Spanish because of your homework takes away every excuse from every dad who says, well, I don't know how to do that. Go to your mama. Right. You know, Go to your mama, the famous <laughs> right. father's statement, you know. Right. Or what the mother says when your daddy comes home, he's going to get you. Yeah.
1: But he was that father you always talk about, the mm-hmm. one who comes home. Mm-hmm. He was that one who comes home every day, who goes to work every day and comes home every day and even tired, mm-hmm. would take the time to do something for me, with me. He's the one who taught me how to ride the bike, taught me how to skate, didn't know how to skate, taught me how to skate. Wow. And he's that dad, you know, still. And now that granddad to this day. And it framed the way I made decisions about men. It framed the way I thought about myself, my mm-hmm. self-esteem. It affected everything having that kind
0: of home. You know, it's amazing because we. We flew into Washington today, and it was predominantly men on the plane, and we were talking about learning the language of talking to our daughters and how important that is and how intimidating that can be, but how important it is that you as a man become connected in the life of your daughter in a meaningful and powerful way and how it affects how she sees men. It also arms us with the language that creates a lifelong bond. Right. You agree?
1: Yes, yes. My first set of flowers and every set for many years after came from my dad. My first jewelry was a Valentine's gift from my father. The first person who I danced with was my dad. There wasn't a man who could really come and impress me unless he was going to be like my dad. Exactly. So our conversations were very different than the conversations that I had with my mother, but we spent a lot of time just Talking things through, you know, and mm-hmm. he's a man of few words, quiet mm-hmm. spirit, mm-hmm. but he's the one who I could come and say, "Dad, what do you think about this?" Right. and he'll think it through, talk it through with me, and say, "Well, seems like you already got it figured out. Now <laughs> exactly. that you talk it through, yeah. but you just need that safe mm-hmm. space, you know, as women." How important is it to know we are secure? Yeah. And, and when you get that first security at home, even if you stray from it, you won't for long because you know you deserve way better than what you're getting someplace else.
0: You have gotten that kind of security, as you described it, that anchored you as a human being, and yet you have been fearless to go into very insecure environments and be confident in who you were as an individual. Let's talk about one of those areas that you went into. I want to talk about The whole global perspective of looking at the criminal justice system, I know it's one of the issues that you really care about. I think that it is the underbelly and perhaps the substratum of some of the issues that exist in underserved communities, primarily because once you have served any type of time, Mm -hmm. You often are left with a blotch on your resume that affects any other opportunity you would ever get, whether it's for a job or even a place to stay. And generally, the difference between whether you have a record or not is not whether you're innocent or not, but whether you had the money to get the kind of representation to compete with other people in America. Would you agree with that? And if so, why is it still like that today?
1: It is as much justice as you can pay for. Wow. It is as much as you can pay for. And even then, if you are of color, maybe not. Mm -hmm. You can look at... The history of this country, it's not that I can say you can look at the past 10 years, past Mm -hmm. 20 years, past 30 years. The history of this country has been that men and women of color, especially men, have been disproportionately affected by the criminal justice system since slavery to now, we have been disproportionately affected first through bondage and then free but not free and then partially free. And even now, we're navigating what is considered by many to be freedom. But if you look at it on the numbers, mm-hmm. is not. Mm-hmm. Now, if such a large percentage of African-American males are incarcerated, then are they free? And right. if of that percentage— Tens of thousands of them are incarcerated and not guilty. Mm-hmm. That's modern slavery. Yeah. That's negotiating the criminal justice system and manipulating it to get a preferred outcome. And it has been codified. Mm-hmm. Through our laws, mm-hmm. where we've seen young man of 17 years old sell an amount of crack cocaine and we've seen a young man who is Caucasian, same age, sell same percentage in powder mm-hmm. and end up with probation mm-hmm. in the juvenile system while the other is tried as an adult – and ends up with a felony conviction and 20 years in the penal system. And then after they come out of the penal system, then certainly they have a trouble renting a house. I mean, you mm-hmm. know this. You run a successful right. program that deals with these issues. Right. They have problems being able to do things like vote right. they are unable to reconnect with community because the community that was there when they went in doesn't exist when they come out everything has moved on without them mm-hmm. and their whole family structure has deteriorated while they were away even just the cost of having to defend a case mm-hmm. Whether you can afford it or not, there are opportunity costs involved, time costs, emotional costs to family members. When somebody is in the system, the entire family is in the system. You know,
0: when you start talking about the disparities, not only between blacks and whites, but against crack and cocaine, and a lot of those changes in how those laws were debbed out happen both up under Republican and Democratic regimes. Neither one of them have been really great friends to the whole deterioration of the criminal justice uh, system and how it has been pointed adversely at black and brown people. Michelle Alexander talks about the new Jim Crow in her book. There was a race going on for a number of years between Democrats and Republicans to see who could be the toughest on crime. Okay. And all of a sudden it became a race that America interpreted great leadership by toughness on crime. And many of our children, black and brown, ended up getting caught in the quagmire of that. There have been some voices, both Democrat and Republican, who sought to reverse that and to bring about change, and there is a broader consensus. But are you alarmed when you hear new rhetoric, like a, I'm going to be the law and order president? Does it scare you that it might take us backwards in the fight for criminal justice?
1: So the war on crime, Bishop, was a war on us. Mm-hmm. It was not a war on criminal conduct in the United States. It was a war on groups of people. And instead of the African-American male being looked at as first human, Mm -hmm. then citizen, and at times, most times, impoverished citizens, and then add on some form of abuse or addiction to some drug or another— all of those factors would have led to services Mm -hmm. before punishment. But the war on crime, as you said, was about numbers, and they wanted to rack up numbers. And still to this day, we have police departments. If you can go out and collar, Mm -hmm. you get incentivized in your pay, in your leave time, in all kinds of ways that you wouldn't understand the pressure police officers are under unless you've worked on the opposite side of the system, which I have. But yes, I think it's frightening that we're there again, and maybe I should say there still, and that now the rhetoric is wiping away any of kind of the facade that we are interested as a country in helping and serving first, and that our law enforcement should be a community partnership with our citizens. Now, the language, just as in the past couple of days, you know, not just from our president, but from the attorney general who was appointed by our president who's talking mostly about aiding law enforcement in doing their jobs. But if you look at the numbers, uh, we're not lagging behind in arrests. That's not where the issue is. Our numbers are running high on arrests and high on death Mm -hmm. of unarmed civilians, high on incarceration of people who would do better with programs and services. So it is frightening. It's more for me infuriating in that I feel like if we are people of conscience and we're not angry to see the plight of not just our brothers and sisters as other people of color, but you don't have to be a person of color to know that it's wrong. Once you learn about it, you have to know what to do something about it, and that's not happening. So it infuriates me, and I know it threatens, and scares the people who are on the streets dealing with it every day.
0: Let me be devil's advocate here, not because I have a different perspective from you, because I absolutely do not, but because many of my listeners— who really, really agree with us about faith when it comes to social issues become disoriented because of the rhetoric and the way that they see the news and see the world. Mm -hmm. Their question to us becomes, you seem so quickly ready, armed to march and fight against the criminal justice system, and particularly sidewalk crime, where justice is executed on a sidewalk, as is the case between black and blue-wearing officers. They say, we say nothing about black-on-black crime mm-hmm. in every inner city across America. What do you say to that argument?
1: They're lying. It's not true. It's it's a falsehood. Tell us what you uh, really because feel. Because the people— <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> time, time is of the essence, Vision, You in Washington, D.C., things are rough. Right. Um, everybody's paying attention to black-on-black crime. Mm-hmm. See, I don't have to convince Jeff Sessions— to talk about black-on-black crime. He's going to do that. I don't have to go to the governor's and March. Mm -hmm. for them to highlight black-on-black crime. And in fact, they're so busy paying attention to it that we get the incarceration numbers that we have. And they're also content because when you look at crime, you got to look at public housing and the fact that the housing is cordoned off in a particular area and poor schools go in that area. So they put you inside of a cage. It's invisible. I guess we're going to do walls now. Mm -hmm. but So we have these invisible walls that were created as a social construct in our country. And the people of color, we know that it's happening. We're afraid about it, too. We want police officers helping us in our communities because we don't want them overridden by gangs and gang violence. We want to raise our children. We care about our streets, our communities. Mm -hmm. We care about there not being litter all around our property. We have those same concerns. It's just that that's all anybody's been talking about for the past 50, 60 years, and now we have to talk about something else. We have to at least round out the conversation. I got
0: it before I ask the question, but I want my (laughs) listeners to get it, too. The thing that I think that you touched on that I think I have to go back and underscore is that we were, once again, the victims of an experiment gone bad. Mm That this whole low-income housing initiative that hit our country became a cesspool lacking opportunities, lacking jobs, lacking good educational systems. And the stats have now borne out that mixed-income neighborhoods do a lot better socially, academically, morally, than low-income houses where kids cannot look outside the door and see anybody in their neighborhood doing well. Yes. If you can look down the street and the kid down the street, his dad is a doctor, and the kid around the corner, his dad is a janitor like mine was, and the kid around the corner over there, his mother is a teacher like mine was, you you have some perspective of where you fit with opportunity. Yes, When you get into these communities where maybe they were surviving through industrial-type jobs that were once plants and whatnot. What have you, and all of that has gone mm-hmm. and they have sunk into the abyss of no opportunities. That creates a spiraling down of hopelessness that has resulted in an uprising of crime and violence. The problem is, Once we make a mess in America, we don't want to talk about the mess we made. Yes. How do we change that?
1: Well, look, it also creates a level of complacency. Mm -hmm. I'm going to borrow from a preaching woman who I heard day before yesterday by the name of Lady Sarah, who talked about (laughs) how when you're surrounding yourself with these thirsty people, Mm -hmm. you know, when that's all that's around you, you only have enough faith to survive there. Yes. Uh, You don't have any aspiration, any exposure to do something different. Than that, and then they don't put the tools in the community. Mm-hmm. You know, not even a grocery store that would sell whole foods, foods from the ground. You would have to travel right. to get to that. Some children only know the carryout.
0: The amazing thing about that is you can point at almost any inner city in America, and the statement is the same. I'm sitting with you in Washington, D.C., and it sounds just like you're talking about South Dallas, where you can't get a grocery store. You can't get healthy foods. All you see is greasy foods on every corner that's unhealthy, the promotion of tobacco and alcohol, and whatever you see, that's what you're going to be. Yes, You don't see hope. You don't see intellectualism. You don't see the birthing of strong universities and strong people. In fact, in certain areas, you had originally white flight, now black flight, now brown. As soon as they get a chance, they're going to fly out of them. We have to fix some of these communities. Are you seeing anything on the horizon that looks hopeful for a solution rather than us just banging the desk over and over generation after generation about the problem?
1: Well, there have been some successes. So here in Washington, Mm D.C., in the Southeast community— I'm going to talk first about what's easier to do. Through community partnership, there were lots of changes made in that area through partnership with the government, through insistence upon it, through people like former Mayor Marion Barry Mm -hmm. and the work that they did. But the greater work that made for the changes where you see townhomes and you don't see as much gentrification, you see people of color actually being able to stay and remain in those homes and stores coming into the community. Mm -hmm. What happened? is that people like H.R. Crawford, who just died recently, was a famous contractor, entrepreneur, construction guru who gave contracts to other black people. It was Marion Barry, H.R. Crawford, and others who— 30 years ago knew that the only real way those communities will change is if there is an influx of dollars that Mm -hmm. are going to like-minded people of color who are willing to build up those communities. And then it became profitable. And then when it became profitable, then of course the city would get behind it and companies would get behind it because the construction company doesn't care where they build, they just want to make the money.
0: It is amazing to me that we have corporations in America Who have no problem with going into third world countries and building businesses in spite of crime and drugs and poverty, but step all over Topper inner cities, which would be less shipping, less freight, and more accessible, but have similar challenges, and yet they leap over top of them and go to the next thing. I want to go on because we got a lot to talk about today. <laughs> in the interest of full disclosure, I didn't meet you in court. I met you in church. Yes. So I'm sitting at home watching CNN, and they bring out this lawyer here who's going to be the spokesperson for Bill Cosby. And here it is, this girl that was clapping her hands on the front row of a church. And I said, oh, I know her. Yes. Tell me about that experience, and what was that like for you? Hmm.
1: So, um, what I can say is everything when I look back at the past 20 plus years, I can see all of the steps along the way that made it not easy, but not painful to be in that environment under that kind of rigorous attack, having to answer those kinds of questions. There were things that I had done along the way, for instance, that taught me about what you need to be prepared to go from relative obscurity to notoriety in a flash. Right. So there there was preparation beforehand. You know, my full disclosure, I don't know if I've missed a leadership conference you've put on for the <laughs> past, for adulthood, let's wow. just say adulthood, except for a time when I took time to have children, and right. then my husband went, and I got tapes, and then it was online. So the work that you've been doing, that God has had you do with all of us, has made it possible for me to do the things that I'm doing now and the the work that I'm continuing to do because I feel like the training ground and the preparation was there. I used to coach the law students at Howard and some of my law students got interviewed for a profile on me and they said, you know, what is it that she would say to you? What's the key to your success? And they said she would say three things, preparation, 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 because that's how I was raised. That's what I live on. There's not anything or time that I step into a room, whether to speak, to teach, to preach, to interview, that I haven't done my work because I feel like whatever gift I have Mm -hmm. um, can't flourish. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'll embarrass myself if I don't have the work that goes behind it. I think working people, hardworking people beat talented people all the time, Mm -hmm. beat brilliant people all the time because they have a work ethic. So, uh, so, So for me, I felt like it was A step on the way that I was uniquely prepared to come into, uh, not just because of legal training or speaking training, but because of faith training. I know there were so many people praying for me, including you, that I felt light in it, even though it was probably one of the craziest, most difficult periods in my life. But I had a secure family network, you know, with a husband who's a partner, because that's the things you gotta think about when you go into something like that. It's not just, is it a good opportunity? Is it a God opportunity? And for me, like every other case, is there something concerning the cause of justice that I can contribute, Mm -hmm. that I'm uniquely able to contribute that would be different from the next person?
0: When you start talking about that sort of thing and all of a sudden your destiny steps lead you to a dark place, and it is also a place where your blessing is lodged, but it is generally the greatest blessings are born out of the deepest controversies. Yes. What kind of message do you want to convey to the person who recognizes that you prayed for the blessing and here comes the problem? How do you discern? What problems and what tough jobs like that to take on? And for the viewer who said, why don't you ask her the hard questions? I'm not asking her the hard questions because (laughs) she can't answer the hard questions, but I am dying to ask her the hard questions. Trust me. But but I want to pull out of it what we can. Mm -hmm. I've been in the room when you had to make tough decisions in, in my own career. And generally, some of those tough decisions take you into some horrifying situations. You don't get to explain what you base your decision on. You don't get to tell your side of the story. You fall prey to whatever people write and say about you. And yet there was a reason that made you to go into a hellish situation because you were called to a purpose. What did you learn about yourself from that?
1: That uh, I'm a problem solver an advocate, but my purpose really is to go into situations that are dark and bring some light, bring some peace, bring some direction, bring some resolve. And as you said, probably year before last, which was maybe two months before I took the case, we were at Megafest, you said God is designing Mm -hmm. problems, tailor-made for you. Don't forsake or be concerned about or complain about the problem because the problem is where you get the avenue to do what you're here and created to do. And that has been the case for me. But it's also been the case, you know, I have a sense and always have, I care about justice Mm -hmm. being served. And I'm not confused about the court of public opinion, Mm -hmm. or what people say about a particular person. And as far as I know, every single person in the world has sinned. I mean, we're wrapped up in flesh here. So my whole profession is about dealing with people who are in hard spots. And I mean, my preaching profession, my teaching profession, my legal profession, it's coming into a hard place. You know, I wouldn't have any work if there was no challenge. So I felt like through the entire process, when I talk about it, I talk about, like, my internal beat mm-hmm. um, that isn't the same. Like, you could be hearing the news, music, or I could be walking into a courthouse or anything that you could just go on Google and see the pictures of me doing something. And when I look at it, it makes me laugh because I can think, like, in my head, it was boom, 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 because, I am mean, you know, I'm Temple yeah. of Praise. So yeah. I, there's this praise meter <laughs> yeah. that's going on in my conversation. Conversation with God where if I hear a yes and I have clear direction and I know I'm doing right thing, right reasons, gotten good counsel about it, Mm -hmm. know what I stand for in it and Mm -hmm. what my assignment in it is, then say what they want.
0: They can say whatever they want. Say what they want. When you look at it, you know, people look at you. She's a young black woman. This is a man against multiple women accusing them. Add to that, you're also a black woman who has the mandate of a lawyer, which understands that everybody deserves equal rights to representation up under the law and under the public Constitution of this great country. But you're also an evangelist. That's a lot of stuff to balance out. How many sleepless nights before you said yes? Oh, before. That's <laughs> <have> after. <laughs> Maybe so.
1: A few. But just pacing and praying – but see, to me, there's no contradiction between the lawyer and the preacher mm-hmm. uh, because while the law has to mete out justice and everyone's entitled to representation and there's innocent until proven guilty and presumption of innocence beyond reasonable doubt and we're all of that in the law – On this other side where I'm called, Mm -hmm. there's grace and mercy, Mm -hmm. and there's forgiveness of God, Mm -hmm. and there's an advocate who's better for you in court or anywhere else than I can ever be, and that Jesus is why I walk free now. So I didn't have any internal contradiction about my role, and I really never do. I don't take cases I don't believe in. I don't say things I don't mean Mm -hmm. for the sake of a case. Mm-hmm. It's it's never that. But in this particular area, not just with that one case, but with other cases. And, you know, I work as a crisis manager, so sometimes I'm working. I'm doing my best job when nobody knows I'm doing it, mm-hmm. when nobody knows the client, whether it's high profile, low profile, no profile. If I've been called in to handle something and take care of it and that gets done and I can go in and go out, mm-hmm. that's a job well done for me. And mm-hmm. some of those rooms are hotter than anything I've had to face <laughs> okay. in public. Wow. But See, here's the thing. One of the whole... Questions that was, how could you as a woman do this? Mm-hmm. And how could you as a black woman do that? Mm-hmm. And how, and I'm kind of like, how could we not? Mm-hmm. Are the hardest cases, the criminal justice cases, the wrongful death cases reserved for the men in the law? Mm-hmm. People don't realize that there are more per capita women brain surgeons mm-hmm. than lawyers. It is still a man's world. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of questions, even from journalists, I got God, what if it was your daughter? From like a real journalist mm-hmm. asking me supposedly professional questions mm-hmm. about a case mm-hmm. where I'm not mom, but I'm lawyer. <laughs> right, right. And I say just with no beat, that's the entire problem with our dialogue in this country. Inappropriate questions are asked of women Marco Marrero doesn't get that question right, right. Tom Mesaro wouldn't get that question Ben Crump doesn't get that question know them respect them good friends with each of them but they're powerful men in the legal arena who are expected to take on conflict driven challenging cases where people have contrary opinions and they don't get that so I've been lately preaching this message because I say so for all kinds of women's events. And what it's about is that women are supposed to have a say Mm -hmm. and we have the same right to a say in every marketplace as the man does, Mm -hmm. that we have a unique voice. It used to be said we were so emotional that we couldn't make clear decisions. We didn't have executive function. Right. Mm, Well, you look around now and I mean, the men empower in this town, especially, seem a bit emotional, <laughs> seem driven to emotional responses, <laughs> seem to kind of fly off the handle <laughs> okay. based on their feelings being hurt. Right. And so my, my, my charge <laughs> as a woman is to show We can be calm. We can be cool. We can be collected. We don't have to have a neck roll with it. You know, we don't have to have those responses that we have been caricatured to have.
0: Incidentally, to our listening audience, we're in Washington, D.C., so we're not in Dallas when she says this town. Oh,
1: yes, this town. My town. (laughs) My town, sir.
0: (laughs) You mentioned my daughter. My daughter just ministered at our church. You mentioned her message, and she just pinned a book to the same title as the Mm -hmm. message, Don't Settle for Safe. And all the while I'm listening at you and I'm looking at you, you don't settle for safe.
1: No, there's not anything there. Really. I think that everything, either you're called to do by God or anytime you want to make an advancement in this world, it's on the edge. Mm -hmm. It's out there. I mean, everyone is comfortable in safety. Mm -hmm. And I think especially as women, but for men, too, we need a safe place. Mm -hmm. I've got a safe support system. And it gives me the freedom Mm -hmm. and the room to challenge myself but my mom from as long as I can remember was saying you can do whatever it is you dream you can do and be whatever it is you are smart yes because I heard it so many times (laughs) I didn't have any choice but to believe it but it is there is a difference every time I can look back and see where there was a trajectory shift it was about either doing something that everybody wasn't necessarily going to agree with Mm -hmm. or making a radical change from something that would make sense
0: (sighs) or (laughs) or even
1: just the (laughs) opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at people who say they want to do this, they want to start their business, they want to, but the kind of information that are even available at your conferences, Mm -hmm. they won't invest the relatively peanuts Mm -hmm. it costs to come out and get that word that can change your entire life. Life, So I think we have to invest in ourselves on the edge Absolutely. and we have to make edgy decisions. You
0: know, this is such a great conversation, particularly for me, because I know the feeling of forsaking safe. And I didn't give my daughter that title. And I was really surprised by the title that she had matured so rapidly yeah. to get that, <laughs> that everybody who ever did anything great in this country or for this country or any other country couldn't settle for safe to do it. And when she said don't settle for safe, it really resonated in my own life. I know the feeling that you have, or at least I had, when you leave the comfort of the familiar and the safe and you go out into the abyss of controversy and misunderstanding. And I think you touched on something that I think is an opportunity to share with people who are listening. It is not that you are so courageous that you don't feel the heat. (laughs) Right. You do feel the heat. Oh, yes. You do stay up at night. You Mm. do have indigestion, and you do read things that you wish you hadn't read, and people are cruel and brutal and mean, and not only to you but to your children and to your family and to your parents and everybody else. Unsafe is unsafe, no matter who you are, male or female, young or old. It's unsafe, and nobody likes to be unsafe. Right. But you said something. That really resonates with me because what I learned was not to draw my need for safety from the masses because they will deny you. Yes. But to have an inner circle through which you draw that feeling of people who really know you who really know who you are, not people who've read about you or have an opinion about you, that you cannot do exploits if you need safety from the masses. You have to take safety from the few. And I just want to underscore that because I want everybody listening to get that because everybody— my father told me when I was eight years old, I was coloring on his red pickup truck. It had a black fender, and I was over there coloring— and I was talking to him about something was going on at school. And I said, Daddy, they don't like me. He said, boy, he said, that's your problem. He yeah. said, I don't care what you do. Mm-hmm. Everybody is not going to like you.
1: Right.
0: I was eight years old. I can hear it in my head to this day. But I think the need to be affirmed and accepted causes people to play it safe. And they lose destiny moves because you have to be fearless whether you want to be or not. Am I right?
1: Right. And I think that each step out that you take, it really is kind of either a conversation between you and God, but then ultimately between you and yourself, mm-hmm. where for me, my real test was when the people in what I used to consider my safe zone mm-hmm. turned. Right. And I think you have to have that right. because then I had to know I had a made up mind. Right. You know, I remember when I left, I was with the attorney general's office for D.C. and I was defending police cases mm-hmm. that was just. I'm good on the other side because I've defended the cases and tried the cases defending the government and the police. Mm-hmm. But I had really great job, senior litigator, making great money. And I said, yeah, I'll come back. I'll do this for you. I'll stay a year. I stayed two years, two months, and I went and saw the attorney general and I said, it's time for me to go. And it had gotten to the point where I was sick doing it the same way I'd been excited by the opportunity because I knew I'm meant to have my own firm. I'm meant to call my own shots. I'm not meant to meant to get up at dark and come home at dark and everybody who i service gets the benefit i'm going to my kids are going to get the full benefit of my labor and i'm going to work on a schedule that works for me and at that point everybody like oh mom and them everybody child (laughs) what you doing good government job and benefits and that's when you have to say okay but watch You know, if you can't agree with me, just pray, and I'll either bump my head and be wrong or it'll work. Let's just see.
0: You know, let me tell you something. That was a perfect pivot because you're going exactly where I'm about to go. I'm going to talk to you about this whole notion, be a boss, Mm -hmm. that has epitomized so much of your speaking and your going out and becoming a role model for a huge population of women in particular, but not necessarily limited to, but largely amongst women. We're seeing more entrepreneurs than we have ever seen in the history of this country. Leading the pack is black women over black men or white Women, yes. Black women are opening up businesses faster than anybody else. If you're a woman or you birthed a woman or you're a father of a woman or your mother is a woman, if you're anywhere near a woman, you will not want to hear the rest of this. You went out there on your own, started your own business, left the safety zone, didn't settle for safe I know what it is to have all of your family say, you must be crazy, you must be crazy, you must be crazy, because we were raised by a generation of people that you work a mm-hmm. nine to five, and you get a watch after 30 years, mm-hmm. and you retire, and you get a little place down there somewhere by the water, and that's it. You broke all the rules. Tell me why.
1: <sighs> it was important to me that I reach what I'd seen of my life, and I wasn't there. And I had a unique understanding from the point of walking in the door. I did two stints the attorney general's office the second time I got called in. I've heard you say before, something that can be like a huge blessing to you in one season can feel like a curse in the next because it was just meant to be for a season and to get me a little further down the road. But for me... The opportunity to not just control my own outcomes and work cases that I want to work where I have a yes and I have a no for it, but also for me, I was a mom uh, with small children. Still, mm-hmm. I stayed home completely mm-hmm. until they were school age. So they were at least in school. But I still wanted to be able to, like today before I came here, there was a little cross game for my daughter. Mm-hmm. OK, so I wasn't at the office. I didn't accept any court hearings today. I didn't take any speaking engagements. I'm at the game. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's I don't want to fool anybody. Entrepreneurship is not easier <laughs> right. because you call your right. own shots. You work harder mm-hmm. and you work the craziest, insaneest Hours, you know, sometimes it's taking care of all the kids, making sure her husband's okay. And then my work day starts around 10 PM when I'm on sofa and everything is quiet. I'm like, okay, let's write, let's type, let's think, talk to Mm. God, do some more work. So I wanted that for myself and I wanted to be able to model that. I had people around me who were entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. who Talk to me about, like, why would you make or defend the government and save them millions of dollars Mm -hmm. where you can be in the case that brings the yield for the millions of dollars? Or you can be representing the company in your own right Mm -hmm. and get paid what you're actually worth to do the job. So government was good training ground for me. But having the autonomy Mm -hmm. and having the independence and being able to be in charge of— of my own financial picture. Like, if you rise or you fall, eat what you kill.
0: Right, right. And,
1: you know, my husband's an entrepreneur and I'm an entrepreneur, so we had to really look at each other three times and say, is this it? But what really shifted it for me where I cemented it was the case came. There There was a case some years ago, and... A man met my husband at a convention and said, you know, I'm looking for a lawyer in D.C. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. I was on what I call the backside of the mountains. I was cleaning diapers. I was nursing a baby. (laughs) I was doing, you know, I was in full mom mode. And he called and he said, hey, Mo, this doctor, he's looking for somebody in D.C. Do you know somebody who can take this case? And I said. Yeah, I know somebody. <laughs> right,
0: right, 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 right. I <laughs> me, know somebody. Yeah.
1: I'm the somebody we know in this. And so that kind of pushed me into solidifying and cementing the process. And it's been the best thing that has happened
0: to me. You know, when you start talking about entrepreneurship, it's not just somebody who wants to open up a chicken shack, though there's nothing wrong with that. But I have many members in my church who were physicians, who are physicians, Mm -hmm. who decided to go into practice for themselves or attorneys like yourself or people who were CPAs or working for firms and decided to go on their own. And for anybody, whether it is Mabel's Chicken Shack or Joe's Plumbing Shop or whether it is a limited liability partnership that's set up between attorneys to allocate services to an underserved community, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. what... It is, it's still scary. Yes. And it's still tough. Yes. And I find that entrepreneurship works best when you have mentoring and models to look at that help to escalate the process and lessen the learning curve. Yes. The good news is that African-American and I only say it's good because we are underserved and behind economically than many other people groups. We are seeing black women lead the charge, helping to bring equity. And it's good news. I want to see the brothers come up, too. But many of the women are taking care of the kids and Mm -hmm. they really do need additional resources. I applaud that, but the bad news is many of those women who go into business go out of business Mm -hmm. as fast as they go in.
1: Yes.
0: The stats say that they go out of business mostly because they go into business from a perspective of need. I need money. I'm going to open up a business rather than going into business because they see opportunity Mm -hmm. and they have studied out the opportunity and says this neighborhood is prime for this type of business or this is the right time to go into business. How did you know that this was the right time in your life in the community that you provide services, that you had a viable opportunity that gave you the optimum chance to be successful as an entrepreneur.
1: Right now, I don't know if I knew all that, Bishop. We just it we just
0: haven't. happened. Did it, it well, just happen?
1: no, I knew some of it. It was the plan, and mm-hmm. and I was kind of so uncomfortable in where I was that there was going to have to be a shift to something, okay. and I didn't want to work for anyone else. I've had i always had, as you would say, other streams. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't going to rely solely on it. That's good. But I guess my challenge in this environment, Bishop, is we say that about the women and the women in necessity begets the man or the woman and they Mm -hmm. go into these businesses Mm need-based. But here's the thing. The jobs aren't available. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to be whether you're inner city or whether you're Rust Belt, Mm -hmm. we know that for women who are trying to do the role of man and woman in terms of raising a household, not the good for nothing man who's left. Mm -hmm. These over incarcerated men that Mm -hmm. we've been talking about in the other settings. So they've got a husband they're taking care of Mm -hmm. who is locked up and they're spending money on telephone services and on making sure that he's got something in the account and then they're holding it down for these kids Mm -hmm. and then they lose the job. And so either you can decide to be dependent on the government Mm -hmm. for some daily bread and not good bread. I mean, you can't even get organic food with what the government gives you with that card or they take what's in them and they make something of it. I think what's important is to give them the tools for it because if you've got to do it because it's nothing else, you know, woman just frying the bacon, you Mm -hmm. know, bringing on bacon, frying it in the pan. Cute song, but we're forced sometimes into those roles. And so what we try to do with the entrepreneurship seminars is I say to people Yes, the poor are going to always be with us, but it doesn't have to be you. (laughs) You don't have to be the poor person. God doesn't want you to be broke. Entrepreneurship is biblical. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. take the time to get the steps Mm -hmm. in place. But if you can't take time to get the steps, then as you're going, catch up with the steps. And I think that's what we can aid them by doing is giving them a vehicle where it doesn't cost thousands of dollars to get it.
0: Well, I am certainly blessed to talk to a very extraordinary woman, not only who has led a very extraordinary career, a lot of times when you know someone, as I have known you, and you sit down to really dig into them, there's all sauce and no substance. But the deeper I dug, the richer the results were. It's really amazing to get to talk to you and very impressive. How do people get you to speak maybe they need a lawyer you know (laughs) how how would you like for them to reach out to you
1: so yes more speaking teaching preaching writing than lawyering perfectly i take now about four cases a year so MoniquePressley.com is the website and if they want to make a request they can do it there on twitter i'm at monique presley on instagram i'm at monique presley i'm at monique presley Anywhere And just if they just want to hit me up with a question or encouragement, I'm one of those people who still goes through my public Facebook page, sometimes myself, and I write back to people. And sometimes they're on there having their own argument or conversation about something I did, and I'll interject and be like,
0: really, you need to? Every now and then I do, too. You know, I just can't help it. They'll say something (laughs) that just calls me out, and I go there. I'm so glad we called you out for this podcast, and uh, Mm I hope that all of our listeners will will share it, we'll recommend it, we'll allow other people to have the unique opportunity to receive ministry from someone who has had such a plethora of experiences from a wide portfolio of a journey that includes so many unique positions. And I think that the final thought I would leave with you is don't be afraid not to fit and don't be afraid to be different. And don't be afraid of what they say, because you do have the power within yourself to maintain your focus and keep it moving. Thank you, Monique Presley.
1: Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Wow.